I'm joined today by Anthony Del Rio. Anthony is the president of Rush Health, the clinically integrated network of Rush University System in Chicago. Prior to joining Rush, Anthony represented healthcare clients at an international law firm with a focus on mergers and acquisitions. In this episode of Tuning Healthcare, Anthony and I discuss the movement to risk and how he is focused on enabling Rush to take more risk. How health systems deliver the scale and network to aggregate thousands of physicians and hundreds of thousands of lives. How he believes the health system clinically integrated network will have a greater long-term impact on healthcare than the primary care aggregators. And the advice he would give to his younger self would be to take chances. Join Anthony and me as we tune healthcare. Anthony, thank you for joining us today. I'm really delighted to have you on the Tuning Healthcare podcast. Really excited to get your perspective of somebody who runs a large clinically integrated network of free primary care aggregators and, and the evolution of, of the sort of what at Lumeris we call the accountable physician um, has really um, gathered steam. And so your perspective is going to be fascinating. And also the first time I think we've had a fellow lawyer uh, and definitely a fellow reformed lawyer on the podcast. So Anthony, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me, Nigel. I'm happy to be here and I'm uh, happy to share our experiences of suffering through law and moving on to, to greener pastures. Excellent. So before we jump into topics that are currently facing the industry and um, challenges and opportunities that you see in front of uh, Rush, um, tell us about your background, obviously, we've covered that you started in law, and, and how did you end up in healthcare? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and so, um, you know, my interest in healthcare actually did predate uh, my time in law. Um, uh, my undergrad, I studied business, um, and my focus was actually healthcare. Um, and at the time, you know, full transparency, my focus was healthcare because, in you know, my head, as thinking as a you know a twenty year old, I was like, well, healthcare is nearly twenty percent of our GDP. If I go into healthcare, surely I'll have a good job. Um, and so I, that was a big area of interest. I studied a lot. Um, uh, my, I did finance specifically, um, and you know I did pretty well. Uh, but coming out, I had uh, a lot of professors that were encouraging me. Hey, you should go to grad school. You know, you've you've done very well. I think you you should go into kind of a higher level here, get a graduate degree. Um, and at the time, it was like, well, you know, do I go and get an MBA? And it's like, well, no, because you really need to have some really good work experience before you go to get an MBA. Um, and I had some management experience, but not really stuff that I would view as criteria to go to an MBA program. Um, and someone kind of stared me towards law. Um, and and because I had some interest in policy along with kind of the business side of things. Um, and so I went to law school um, and I... I out of law school. I had a great time in law school, learned a lot. I also spent some time with HHS, General Counsel's Office, um, and also the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, because I'm originally from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, for my time there, it was really great. Um, but, you know, as, as with most of my classmates, I didn't go into government work. I went to a kind of private law firm. Um, and I had, you know, your traditional healthcare clients um, tended to be more community hospitals, uh, large physician groups. Um, and it was a great experience, uh, but my, my wife, who I met during law school, um, was actually an MDJD, and so she was finishing up her MD while I was practicing, um, and she went through the whole kind of match program, 
and ended up matching at University of Chicago for residency. And uh, I was in Atlanta at the time. My firm was in Atlanta. We didn't have a Chicago office. And so I started looking for jobs. And unfortunately, this was right around the downturn. Um, and so it was, you know, 2010. Um, and finding legal jobs during that window uh, was a little challenging, um, as one might expect. And I lucked out that there was a consulting firm that did healthcare consulting um, that I saw and I, you know, I sent in my stuff and they called me in and they flew in and did an interview. Um, and it was this nice alignment of, you know, they were looking for someone with regulatory expertise, but also, you know, kind of business side finance management expertise. And, and I was kind of a unique marriage of that. Um, and so they, they made me an offer I accepted. And I, so I went to consulting for a few years doing that work. And it was like a nice hybrid of legal uh, and business. And I was on the ground uh, working with a lot of AMCs, um, doing kind of development work and management work and healthcare is so heavily regulated that my legal background was very helpful in that. Um, and I, you know, developed several hospitals, developed new programs, you know, helped manage programs. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. But then after a few years, as tends to happen, uh, my wife and I, uh, we, we had a child um, and suddenly flying around the country doing consulting work was a little more challenging. And so I, I did the thing, which I still get made fun of by some of my, my law friends, was I went to a big law, I went back to a big law firm because I had a kid, which is normally not the course you go. Um, but then I went back to a large healthcare firm uh, doing healthcare M&A and regulatory work um, for several years after that. Um, and I did a lot of deal work. And at first I was doing hospital work, but then over time, and you, you guys are probably very familiar with this, a lot of private equity money started flowing into the healthcare world. Um, and so my, my kind of work started pivoting more to private equity, you know, physician aggregators actually. Um, and so I was doing a lot of kind of physician roll up work with various PE backed, VC backed um, platforms um, and getting away from hospital kind of centric work um, and as I, you know, as I shifted from, from hospital work to more PE work, it, it was just less interesting and more rote and, and I just, I, I lost touch with it. Um, and so I started looking again and I, I went to, um, I interviewed with kind of several large AMCs. Um, I ended up going with Rush University Medical Center. Um, at the time it was Rush University Medical Center. Um, and since we, I joined Rush in the legal department, um, head of their healthcare transactions group, and uh, the Rush became a system, and so Rush University System for Health, and now it has three hospitals. Um, and one of the final deals I did in my legal role was acquiring our clinically integrated network, which is Rush Health. And so I, I led the deal of acquiring Rush Health into the Rush system. Um, and once we did that, there was kind of a search for leadership uh, to take over that role. Um, we did an external search and I got, you know, several people coming to me within our organization saying, hey, you did this deal. You know so much about this. Your prior experience in consulting really aligns with this. You know, is this something you'd be interested in? Um, and again, it goes back to being kind of that nice marriage of a lot of regulatory things, but then also kind of the business operation strategy side. Um, and I said, absolutely. Um, and that was a little over a year ago. Um, so I, I, it was funny actually, because part of my, you know, part of my pitch during my interview for why, why I'd be good is like my vision of what, what we could be, what this clinically integrated network could be and, you know, our, our pivot to value and risk. 
Um, and you know, a lot of that was kind of more theoretical at the time. And people were like, yeah, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, they, we, let's have them explore that. Um, and then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden, you know, having you know, risk and capitation-based reimbursement versus fee-for-service reimbursement um, became very attractive. Uh, and so it kind of uh, supported my thesis there. Uh, but you know, that's, it's, been a, it's been a great journey. Um, you know, we're very strategically focused on how we're gonna grow our network um, how we're going to be successful and kind of where healthcare needs to be. Um, and so this move away from fee for service to value. And, but that's, that's been my journey here. Um, you know, it's been great. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't miss my days of doing healthcare M&A work, but it was, it was, you know, I think legal, the legal background was a great building block to be successful because healthcare is so heavily regulated and there's so much going on that it was a good framework, but I'm, I'm happy to be more focused on business and strategy now. Yeah. So I always find that um, the legal training obviously didn't stay in law anywhere near as, as, as long as you did. Um, but I always found there were three main things in my legal training that have held me in really great stead um, during my um, business career. And I would say the three are, first of all, you know, you just there's an analytical capability that 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 is sort of ingrained in you through the through both the study and practice, and so that I think is the ability to sort of take in data and analyze it. I think is is a great skill set. The second is just attention to detail, right? And and we know when we execute, it's all in the detail, and and so that um, is um, you know I remember my the first partner I worked for being like really pedantic about, you know, every piece of grammar, where a, where a stop was, where a comma is. And so, I mean, even to that level of detail, which might sound boring and a waste of time, but it sort of trains you in, in, in attention. And the third um, is um, negotiation, right? You're involved in negotiating almost every single day um, of your life, um, which is, just critical because you know now as as the leader of of um, of your clinically integrated network you're you're negotiating every single day of your life whether it be with physicians whether it be with colleagues whether it be with with payers I mean it's a, it's a massive part so I always felt those three things um, have and you added a fourth right which is sort of uh, comfort with sort of the whole regulatory environment um, have really held me in in great stead and um, so. Um, perhaps sometimes undervalued. I, I actually think uh, it's um, in many ways some some great skill sets as you move into your role. So you touched on a lot of uh, great things um, that I would love to to delve into. So let's let's delve into the into one of them first, which was um, the move to value. Um, and you know, I've said on this podcast before, healthcare. Um, has always had the reputation for being recession proof, but it turned out not to be pandemic proof. And, and so, as you correctly said, if you have a greater percent of your reimbursement in value-based care, you were much more protected through the pandemic than if you were reliant on, on fee-for-service. So tell us a little bit about, obviously you, you staked your, your claim for the job on the move to value. Where is the, where is your clinical integrated in this journey? How much risk do you take? How, how do you see the evolution? Tell us a little bit, uh, delve a little bit deeper for us into, into sort of value-based care. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, 
where we're at, where we currently sit, uh, Rush Health, um, we've got uh, probably a little over 2,000 providers that are in our CIN, um, 2,200-ish. Um, we've got four hospitals. Three of them are Rush-owned, so uh, Rush hospitals. Um, one of them is an independent hospital uh, that's still in, in you know the Illinois market. Um, and so that's that's our network size. We have all other various kind of ambulatory facilities and things like that too, kind of around the edges. Um, and we we're a little unique in that we have um, all of the contracting functions sit within our CIN. Um, and so that includes our fee for service contracts with you know the commercial payers. Um, it includes our value you know, you know value based contracts with the payers, um, but then also our government programs too. And so. Um, Right now, we've got, in terms of value, um, we have uh, our Medicare ACO, which has uh, roughly 30,000 lives in it. Um, we've got um, MA, some MA contracts in place that have about another 5,000 lives. Um, we have a commercial ACO uh, with a major payer in the market um, that has about 60,000 lives. Um, and then we also have a Medicaid uh, product uh, through a Medicaid MCO that we're at, at risk for that has about another 15,000 lives. Um, and then we also manage our, our self-insured employee population um, that's covered under our system. And so subtotal together, it's probably 120, 130,000 um, lives. Uh, they, they're all at different points though. So on, on Medicare, uh, you know, we, we're at risk, but there are various kind of caps and protections around upside and downside. And we, you know, we split that with Medicare. It's not full risk. It's not capitation. Um, it's kind of somewhere in between. On the commercial side, um, we're also at risk. But again, we have kind of buffers for upside, downside. Um, that one is benchmarked based on prior year costs. Um, and so we have kind of a PMPM that's assigned to, you know, that population to say, okay, Last year it was this, this year our target is, you know, it's mainly on the commercial side is to control costs. And so we're not looking to say, hey, spend less this year than you spent last year. But if you keep it below X increase or X increase in percent, um, then we'll see upside shared savings. Um, or if we just blow through it and we end up, you know, having an increase in cost of, you know, 8% or something, um, then we would owe some uh, kind of a downside payment back. Um, Medicaid population is more similar to kind of your Medicare ACO in that, you know, we are at risk. We have some PMPM dollars around care management. Um, and then our, our self-insured employee population is really, you know, that one is capitated in a way because it's our money. Um, and so we, you know, we try to manage that one um, similar to how we manage our Medicare population. So make sure, you know, try to make sure they stay out of the ED, get appropriate site of care, um, manage chronic conditions, um, but it's a lot, a lot of really cool opportunities to leverage, you know, our, our pop healthcare management resources um, with our own employees. Because, you know, really, if if we're not comfortable that it's going to be successful with our own staff, we probably shouldn't be using it with other other populations. Right. And where do you see it going? Do you see yourself being taking more and more risk and and a greater percent of the premium dollar? Um, how do you see that evolving for for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. And so. Um, I made, uh, the 18 months I've been here, I've made a big push to get into um, pathways to risk. Um, and so we've we flipped to downside for both on commercial and our Medicare populations this year. Um, 
We're going to push more aggressively. So on MA, on our MA products right now, it's upside only for the most part. Um, but we're pushing those into downside over the next couple of years as we get to, you know, what I'd call critical mass um, in terms of kind of lives attributed to those programs. Um, we're also still want to make sure we pick the right MA partner because um, there's a lot of obviously, well, you're well aware, there's a lot of MA players. Um, and so right now, most of our Medicare sits in our ACO. Um, and once we feel like we have good contracts in place on the MA side, I think we'll start saying, yeah, here's who we're going to work with. Um, you know, we have shared risk, um, you know, uh, shared premium dollars, kind of aligned, aligned interest around what we're trying to achieve with the population um, and how we think we're going to get there. Um, but yeah, then I would see us getting into more, more downside risk. And the goal, too, is where we sit structurally within our system is um, my company, Rush Health, is a direct subsidiary of the system, so the system parent. And then the hospitals are kind of sister corporations to me. Um, and the physician groups too. Uh, and so our, our ultimate goal is to have, you know, Rush Health be a, a, you know, value generator for the system. And so a diversification of revenues. And so while, you know, the hospitals are predominantly reliant on fee-for-service, um, as we're successful in our pivot to risk, Rush Health will generate dividends for the system um, through, you know, this value proposition and being successful in managing populations. Um, and so that way, you know, knock on wood, if there's ever another pandemic or something along those lines. Um, and we actually, we saw this this year too. I mean, Rush Health, my numbers look great because I already had risk populations um, within, you know, within my product um, and my programs. Um, but obviously our, our hospitals suffered a great deal um, and so, so the system as a whole um, had a very rough year because of the pandemic and care avoidance. Um, but the goal would be, you know, diversify our revenue streams um, and also like create different value um, for our hospitals to serve. And so recognizing that as the Rush Health Network grows um, and, and our at-risk population grows, no matter what, there are still going to be patients that need brain surgery or heart surgery. Things are still going to happen and the hospitals are going to be there. And they're going to be fully aligned with that value proposition to make sure you're bringing kind of the highest quality and the best value care to those patients. Um, and so I think that's where I would differentiate ourselves from like aggregators. Um, so, you know, Oak Street, for example, does not have, there's not a hospital that's a part of their, you know, their system. And so you can only do so much to align when you don't have a hospital that's really contributing to that mission. Um, and here, because we have this great mix of hospitals and our network, we can all become fully aligned with saying, yeah, here's, here's how we deliver the best care at any level. So any level of acuity, um, because with our system, we have, we've got everything from, you know, you, you got a cough, you got sniffles to you have, you know, an aneurysm, we're going to have you covered in your whole journey. And I think that's, that's the real value we can bring. Um, and that's our push. So yeah, over the next five years, we plan to very aggressively expand you know, what portion of, of our overall revenue is accounted for under risk, you know, risk-based programs. Yeah. So it's, um, it's fascinating, right? Um, I'd love your, your perspective here. Um, um, you, you touched on the, the primary care aggregators. Um, obviously they um, have uh, garnered a lot of attention in both the media and the um, from public investors recently, and some, some obviously some, some, some high valuations, um, and 
it's an interesting uh, model, right? Because in effect, you're delivering the same business, right? You're, you're, you manage physicians, you manage lives, um, but in one market, you're doing it at larger scale than, than probably any single one of them. Um, and you do it um, with obviously the, the, what I consider the network to support you, right? The health system and, and other pieces of the network, ambulatory you mentioned before, right? And so, so tell us your thoughts, okay? Because you're, you're in the same business, but, but you're doing it in one market at, at greater scale and to, to obviously what they're doing in, in multi-market. So I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on from just a business model, model of care. Um, what are you, what are you, what's your perspective? Yeah, um, I think I, I very much respect, you know, their model and what they're bringing. I think it's, it's important to push all of healthcare towards a, a greater value proposition. Um, and so I just want to say that I think the valuations are very high. Um, and so I think looking at kind of the business behind it, you know, just knowing like what it's going to take to get there. And I get a lot of it's probably prospective of, you know, we're buying into this model idea. And as they reach scale, you know, the value will match up with where they're getting to. Um, I think my concerns with the model from, I would say, kind of a healthcare delivery standpoint are, are kind of twofold. One is it's, it's focusing on um, a narrowed population and you're taking primary care doctors out of kind of the larger picture and saying, you're gonna be focused on these MA patients. Um, and so now, you know, this is, this is your sole responsibility, manage these, these Medicare Advantage patients um, and follow this model and, you know, use this technological solution that we have, and this is how you do it. And, you know, we're going to be successful. Um, and ultimately, you know, I think their, their goal, and this is rightfully so, you know, for their corporate structure, deliver value to their shareholders. Um, and so they, they feel like they've come up with a model that will successfully allow them to take on, you know, these patient populations at risk and, and deliver value to their shareholders. Um, I think most of it is probably through kind of focused on arbitrage um, at the hospital level. Um, and so, and certainly that exists, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, a health system executive, but I'll, I will absolutely admit there's definitely opportunities to do better at hospital utilization. Um, that being said, once you squeeze that, where are you going? Um, and my concern is their model is so focused on hospital arbitrage. And by that, I mean, let's do everything we can to keep these patients out of the hospital. Um, that only gets you so far. And then also, what does that do to the larger kind of continuum of care and patient needs? Because again, sometimes patient needs to be there. And sometimes, and I'll use this as an example, and I won't, I won't name names, but there, I'm aware of a kind of a patient in another market where they were part of one of these programs and they had kind of an ongoing condition. It was a very unique condition. Um, it, it was related to brain, so neuro, um, uh, you know, neurological. And the aggregator did the best they could to keep that patient from having to go to an AMC. Um, but that led to a waterfall of issues where when that patient did eventually end up in an AMC, the AMC immediately said, 
whoa, 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 this is, this is X, Y, and Z. This is, we, this is how we need to handle this. But that was after literally weeks of suffering um, because they were trying to do their best to keep the patient in the lowest cost level of care um, rather than saying, wait, this actually does need that academic medical center touch. Because the reality is there are things that come up that need that. Um, and, and these physician aggregators are so focused on kind of leveraging that hospital arbitrage and keeping patients out of the hospital that things are going to get missed and it's going to negatively impact the patients. Um, and ultimately, and this goes back to the kind of the mission question, you know, my, my corporate mission is delivering care to the community and making sure we successfully do that. Um, and we've been doing that for 150 years and we're going to keep doing that. Um, and so there's just different alignment. Um, but I think, I think that's my biggest concern, but I very much, you know, the, their model is important and it's pushing the envelope and it's pushing the narrative. Um, but I do see, you know, higher value in managing the whole continuum of care, um, for the patient's needs. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And, and like you, um, I respect anybody that gets up every day and is in the business of trying to improve healthcare in the country. And so, um, I'm reminded of, uh, of, a, of a story once um, uh, a company came to meet with us in St. Louis um, and um, after a day of, of, of discussing how, how we might be able to partner, the CEO of this company said, you know, um, you know we've been considering it and we think we're, we're too competitive. And, and sort of we looked at them and said, you know, in a multi-trillion dollar healthcare industry, you really believe that, that your $50 million company and our, and our company have more room to compete than we have to, than we have to partner. And so, so from my perspective, I come at it from a, my mindset is, is, is anyone who gets up every day and, um, and is in the business of trying to improve healthcare, you know, all respect to you. Um, but as we think about, you know, you know, I've been in, you know, spent the last 12 years thinking about, you know, value-based care and how do we, what are the models, right? And how do we scale this to the country? What, um, the reason that I think that, um, you know, what you're doing at Rush and, and what other health systems um, are doing and, and what more health systems need to do and, and I think will do over the, over the next few years um, is, um, is more both scalable and impactable to the to healthcare in this country, for me comes down to four things. I think one is the scale, right? We've already just touched on the fact that in your one market, your scale is bigger, right? Than, than, um, and so your, the impact that you have um, and the ability for you to have a continued impact is, is, is enormous, right? Today, you're, you're servicing 130 or 1,000 lives, right? You know, everybody that comes within the Rush network, and if that network continues to grow, is going, going to be significantly greater than that, um, you know, as you roll the clock forward, right? And so that's the scale is one. Second is, you've got the best brand in healthcare, right? And, you know, in every market you go to, the, the health system is almost always the, the best brand. And, and where would you rather receive your healthcare from than than, than rush, right? Or, or pick another healthcare system in another market, right? So the brand you have is, is excellent. The third is a really critical one, um, a topic that's close to my heart um, is just you sort of touched on health equity, right? And, and you're in the business of, of, of really managing 
populations, right? Not, not segments of populations, which I think is, is the mission of the health system. Um, and then the third, sorry, the fourth, and, and, and also really critical is, is to manage populations, you need a network, right? And, and the more you, it, I mean, there's so much research on this, the more that you keep care within a high performing network, the better the outcomes are for the patient. And so you have that network you know, ready to go because you've already, you've got three hospitals, you've got an ambulatory system, you've got, you know, whatever it was, what do you say, 2000, was it 2000 physicians, right? So you have this network um, ready to go. You've got specialists who are, who are, who, who are absolutely needed as part of the, 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 the sort of delivery of, 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 complete and, and excellent healthcare. And so to my mind, I, you know, total respect for the aggregators and, and we need, as you say, people to push the envelope. I think the model you're on for sort of some of the reasons you said plus the four that I added, um, I think uh, is, um, is we're gonna see have a much greater impact on, on sort of healthcare nationwide rather than sort of, you know, um, in market A and B. Um, so that's just my perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, a, a big part of it, too, is going back to the, the question about kind of the health, health equity in different communities. You know, ultimately, if, if we start segregating populations in terms of, okay, these, we're going to aggregate, you know, 400 PCPs in this market, and those PCPs are going to be the highest performers, and we're going to focus them on these MA populations, it, it negatively impacts everyone else. Um, and, and also it negatively impacts the doctors. And so my wife, um, who is a PCP, um, you know, it's so funny. I'm lucky to have her perspective because I always can draw on her to understand, you know, what, what the needs of the providers are and, and what will help them be successful. And, you know, she would, she's, she's actually MedPeds trained, so internal medicine and pediatrics board certified. And so she sees the entire gamut. Um, so from, you know, the, the three-year-old to, you know, the 80-year-old. And for, it's so important for her to see those kind of wide range of populations because there are all these different problems that come up, but it shapes you as a physician and it also shapes your happiness because she, I mean, it's funny, she, she'll come home and she would tell me, you know, God, if I only had to see PEDS patients, it would get so boring. Um, or, you know, she'll, if, if I only had to see, you know, the geriatric patients, then it'd get so boring and, and you know, you lose touch because, suddenly that's all you know about the healthcare, you know, continuous, that sole population. And, and as you follow patients throughout their whole life, you're, you're able to see the bigger picture and all the things that are impacting them. And it's more fulfilling for the physician provider. And it's better for the patient too, because then they have this whole track record of I've been with this, this has been my PCP, this is my PCP. And I, I can't imagine, you know, taking, you know, our providers and our PCBs and saying, I'm sorry, your panel is only going to be Medicare Advantage patients now. Um, and, and there are people in our market doing that. Um, and when, I mean, literally only Medicare Advantage. So if, if that patient is on a Medicare product, is just Medicare fee-for-service, you're not going to see that patient anymore. And you're, you're commoditizing healthcare and that, that relationship between doctor and patient to a, to a degree that I, I don't think is healthy for anyone, um, other than, I guess, the shareholders, potentially. Um, but, you know, I, that's my other concern there because, you know, what our network does is, and this is helpful, is we, we leverage our success on our Medicare population to say, okay, how do we apply that to our Medicaid population? 
or how do we apply that to our commercial population? Because ultimately, our, our employee population, ultimately, there, there are all these things we can learn from these different populations, and we can apply across the spectrum and say, you know, what works and what doesn't, and let's make everyone healthier. Let's make everyone healthier. Um, and ultimately, that's our goal. Right. And which is why, over time, you're you'll be impacting hundreds of thousands of lives, um, um, which, is, which is obviously incredible um, and, and something we um, you know, need of, uh, across the country, and obviously not just in, in Chicago. As you look at these sort of trends that have um, um, you know, been catalyzed, if you like, by the pandemic, um, uh, you know, more um, access digitally, um, move some um, care moving to the home. Um, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned before the sort of care avoidance, which is obviously a major concern. Mental health is is the concern, so it's just exploded. Um, we we had a, you know, we had a crisis before the pandemic. We probably now have like a, you know a real national um, crisis around 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 mental and behavioral health. Um, um, so a lot of things have, have sort of evolved. Um, which trends do you see sort of being boomerangs and which ones do you see being frisbees? So which ones will, will, will be just pandemic, flash in the pan, and will revert back to the way we were? And which ones do you see being things that will um, last through, through healthcare as, as we move into the next sort of, you know, three, five, ten years? Yeah. Um, so the ones that are boomerangs are... are have already come, become pretty evident for us. Um, and so a lot of the kind of surgical-based procedures um, tanked because um, people stopped, you know, for a lot of reasons. Part of it was care avoidance. Part of it was people weren't doing things that injured them. And so for, you know, orthopedics all of a sudden just completely fell off. Um, part of that was because people stopped playing sports. Um, you know, all, all of that type of stuff, I think, is bouncing back as people return back to their communities and, and engage in these activities again. Um, the downside on that kind of stuff, though, and which is kind of scary, is around kind of oncology and neurological issues um, and some heart heart issues. As we, and we've seen a lot of that is care avoidance in those spaces led to more acute issues surfacing. And so, you know, looking at our current data, we're seeing this spike in the level of acuity um, because people were avoiding care. I, I hope that's a boomerang. Um, I hope people become more comfortable of saying, I, I need to get this checked out. You know, I, I've had this, you know, ongoing issue. I need, I need to go see someone about this. And, and we've done a lot of work on our side of trying to engage with our population and say, hey, you know, you haven't been in touch on this issue. We can even do telemedicine. Um, let, let us know. I, I, we're seeing data that's saying, yeah, that's going to be a boomerang. And so those, those are being addressed and it's slowly coming back and, and people are getting more in touch on these kind of ongoing issues that can avoid further acute things. Um, in terms of the Frisbee, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful on behavioral health um, because I think it, obviously the pandemic led to a lot of issues around behavioral health. Um, but it also was an impetus to say, hey, we need to come up with a better way to manage this um, remotely um, through telehealth. Because there, there had been a lot of thought, um, and I, I'm not a provider, but just engaging with my providers on this discussion, that telehealth, behavioral health through telemedicine would not be effective. Um, and what we've seen is it actually, it, it works in a lot of cases. And so even like talk therapy 
through through telehealth, we've seen it being effective. And so now there's this interest that maybe maybe this solution can work, and let's figure out how we leverage this technology in ways to you know um, uh, take these take these issues that are are just throughout all of our communities and and try to triage them. And so one thing I'm really excited about is how do we make sure we're leveraging the right level of care through you know, various technological solutions to address behavioral health needs. And so some of that might even be, you know, uh, we're exploring potential of using like a, a chatbot AI program to triage behavioral health needs and say, what is it you need? Do, do you need you know, uh, talk therapy? Um, do you need um, you know, psychiatric support through, through um, pharmaceutical intervention? Um, or, or, or do you have an acute need? Um, where you know we need to take you to an inpatient setting or even an outpatient, you know, behavioral health solution. Um, and I'm excited for those because really on the behavioral health side, we have the restriction is the supply of, of providers. Um, and so if we can come up with effective ways to triage those needs and make sure you're matching up the need with the right level of provider or the right level of service, it'll open up you know access for everyone. To the right level of care that they need. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. I hope that is a frisbee. Um, telemedicine, it's been a little bit, uh, so broadly telemedicine has been a little bit of a boomerang, but not, I'd say a boomerang that still kind of fell a little bit further down and we'll probably throw it again and hope it's a frisbee. Um, our state, Illinois, has a lot of restrictions around telehealth delivery. Um, those were um, loosened through our engagement with, um, you know, the state legislature and the governor um, during the pandemic. Um, right now, we actually have a bill going through our legislature to make a lot of those changes permanent. Um, but I think there's a lot of concern from the payers about what impact it could have on, on the bottom line. Um, I think there's a lot of data available now, though, to show that, no, telehealth is a good option. It's not going to necessarily increase costs, and it may actually control costs a little bit, um, but it has to be provided correctly. What I've heard informally from payer feedback is the large providers like my health system were not the offenders. So we use telehealth appropriately, um, but they had other groups um, that may have been more profit driven that did kind of just rack up telehealth encounters that are a little questionable. And so that I think that's something we're gonna have to work through, but the adoption at the patient level was good um, providers, I think, are more open to it. We just have to give them an effective solution because right now there are all these solutions in the market, and some of them work better than others. And so, if we can if we can match up the best kind of telehealth solution with the providers and the patients, and then get the payers on board, I think we'll we'll have a great we'll have a great program. And so, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that that will that'll turn into a frisbee, hopefully. Um, so they, that's that's my take on kind of where we sit right, right now. Thank you. Um, so um, thanks. Uh, we like to end with what we call the quick fire round, uh, which is just a, a couple of questions um, just to get your, your perspective. Um, the best piece of advice you've ever given? Hmm. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice, um, particularly for, for young people. Um, uh, what do you do to relax, have fun when you're not uh, negotiating physician salaries? Uh, I used to play a lot of board games um, and I used to go to the gym a lot. Um, now I've got two kids. Uh, and so, and so I, 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 you know, I guess I, I lift them and pick them up. And then uh, I, I also try to get them to play, play games, but um, 
I'll, I'll figure that one out. Uh, it's a five-year-old with a two-year-old, so I'll figure that one out as they as they get yeah. a little bit older. I think yeah. every age is a, is a great age. At least that's my experience so far. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh boy, um, take chances. I mean, it's 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 always challenging, and this goes back to being wrong. You know. In a world, there's there's always this entropy and and always this kind of gravitation towards um, you know not moving not moving down that path and just kind of meandering a little bit because um, maybe you feel safer there maybe maybe it's scary but no you you gotta go and so I mean uh, going back to my career when I made that jump from law to consulting that was a big change um, but it was the right it was the right right way to go. That's, that's uh, great advice. And lastly, if you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? Oh boy. <laughs> I think we're going to need another hour or two. Um, I think I, I, geez. I, I would change reimbursement more. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to get us to this kind of value-based proposition. Cause I think if we can, if we can get to more value focused, it'll create alignment across the whole system, and it's it's less about you know uh, churning your cog, and it's more about how do we improve you know the overall health of that patient. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streamer, and don't forget to rate us as it helps others find our podcast. Summer has arrived in New York City, and I hope you listen to this podcast while enjoying the health benefits of walking outside. Please join us next time as we tune healthcare. This is Nigel Orenstein in New York.